grab a seat. Good morning, church family, lawn and live stream. Happy anniversary to my wife because I have the microphone. I can say things like that. 12 years today. Although, although I'm thinking about adding a plus three because any marriage that's gone through a pandemic, I think you get to do that. So uh, you married folk, if you want to give that a run, if anybody asks you, or says to you, I don't know, that, that you, you don't seem old enough to have been married that long. You just look at them and say COVID, and they, they'll probably respond with, ah, the plus three thing. I see what you did there. Uh, my name is Jamie, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who uh, not very often does stand-up comedy, but does a lot of preaching, and I'm going to do that now as we open up 2 Corinthians together. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and go there. Probably comes as no surprise to you if this is not your first Sunday with us. We have been in this book of the Bible for for quite some time, since the beginning of 2020, if memory serves me correctly. We took a little bit of a hiatus there to address uh, with a little bit more intentional focus some things related to the pandemic uh, for a few weeks there, but we're back on the 2 Corinthians train. This is the first of five remaining sermons in this series. If you're curious as to where we're going after 2 Corinthians, I invite you back next week for the big reveal. Next Sunday will be like the last five minutes of a Fixer Upper episode, so you don't want to miss that. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and, and we'll jump in, and we'll get after God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne this morning in desperate need of a mighty work of your Holy Spirit. Would you overwhelm us with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ that we might all the more know something of the freedom to boast in our weaknesses, that you and you alone might receive the glory in showing yourself strong in our frailties, strong in our sufferings. I invite you to attend the preaching of your word in power now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I've mentioned over the past several weeks now, the, these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, they, they're in essence the final cha- uh, section of a three-part letter, a section focusing on Paul's call to the rebellious minority in Corinth to repent while they still have time, as, as Paul addresses those remaining in opposition to his gospel, to his apostolic authority, those having resisted his authority over the church and having asserted themselves as apostles. Paul was being scrutinized on the basis of his human frailty, on the basis of his less than impressive public speaking skills, things seen by his opponents as disqualifying. They couldn't get their minds around the idea of God's strength made perfect in weakness, showing that the power at work in our lives, the power at work in our ministries is owing to to God and not to us. And so, Paul takes the time to address his opponents here, feeling no sort of pressure to give himself over to to a kind of posturing, so to speak. He's perfectly secure in the identity that he's been given in Jesus, having been set free from the bondage to the fragile human ego. Going back to, to last week, Paul understands what's at stake as he sees this threat to the marriage relationship between Jesus and his people, a church being tempted to veer away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ through the teaching of these false apostles who are masquerading in sheep's clothing, whom Satan is using to to lead the thoughts of the church in Corinth astray, seeking to 
Going back to last week, destroy the work of the gospel in the name of the gospel. Seeking to lure people to another Jesus in the name of Jesus. And so what Paul does here, and he, and he did it last week and he continues to do so, is he assumes the role of a fool. Not only in order to expose the foolishness and lies of these false teachers, but also to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so picking up in verse 16 of chapter 11, Paul says this, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Paul's opponents had sought to undermine his authority, not only pointing to his lack of rhetorical skills and charisma, but, but also pointing to and boasting in their own greatness. Paul says, you want to play that game? Let's, let's have a run at that. Let me show you what boasting actually looks like. If you're going to consider me a fool, indulge me in that for just a second and watch as I expose your own foolishness. In other words, you could say what Paul does here is to mockingly dress up in the rhetorical style of his opponents in order to expose the deception for what it is. Speaking as a fool in order to show the foolishness of his opponent's boasting. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 5, it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's what we see Paul doing here. It's, a, it's an incredibly nauseating exercise for him, but it's the only way he knows to awaken the church in Corinth out of their stupor, which is why most scholars believe Paul would, would say, I say not as the Lord would, but, but as a fool. He doesn't like having to go down this road per se, but he's at his wit's end and, and nothing less than the gospel is at stake. D.A. Carson, uh, in his commentary, he says, Paul's words are no reflection of the real Paul, but only of the Paul who, to preserve the Corinthian church from moral and doctrinal seduction, must answer the real fools according to their folly. So that this morning's passage, it's, it's filled with scorching sarcasm as Paul assumes the role of a fool and essentially fights fire with fire. For, for anyone who struggles to believe the authenticity of the Bible, chapters like this are helpful Christian apologetic, kind of like the book of Psalms, where you see humanity's highest of highs and lowest of lows experienced, or the pessimism of the author of Ecclesiastes. The Bible's not afraid to include things like this, the, the, the truth of the fullness of the human experience. And so Paul brings scorching sarcasm to the table here. He says this in verse 19. He says to those who are being seduced in the church in Corinth, for you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear, bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. The, these false teachers were masquerading as blessings to the church, all the while actually abusing those in the church with their ministries treating God's people harshly, exercising severe control over them, living at the burdening expense of God's people, all the while deceiving them with false promises, acting superior, better than those under their teaching. 
And Paul calls out the saints in Corinth for putting up with it, for lacking the discernment to reject that kind of domineering exploitation. By the way, the, the only way a person can get away with those kind of things is, is if that person perceives himself or herself to be mighty, to be strong, to be impressive. Paul says, that's not me. I'm, I'm a weak man, a fragile jar of clay going back to chapter four. Human frailty, it's a part of the reality of who I am, Paul says. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a man desperate for God's spirit, for God's power. So I can't get away with things like that, he says. Only impressive people, only those mighty and strong can domineer and exploit God's people. I'm sorry I'm not strong enough to mistreat you like my opponents do. My apologies for acting as your servant for Jesus' sake. Going back to a couple of weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 10, Paul acted with meekness and gentleness without abdicating his, his apostolic authority, which is exactly what Jesus did, right? Walking in gentleness, meekness, lowly of spirit, yet the authoritative Savior and King. There's something in that for us, I think, as it pertains to assessing church leadership. We leaders of the church should put ourselves under the microscope as we look at a passage like this. I mean, listen to how the apostle Peter describes the motivations of a godly pastor in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Peter says this, he says to the elders of the church, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those under your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right, Peter pushes back on domineering leadership without sacrificing biblical authority and oversight on that altar. There's a beautiful both and there. That's the Apostle Paul. In stark contrast to the false apostles who are seeking to lead the church in Corinth astray. Paul goes on, the end of verse 21, in assuming the role of a fool in order to show the foolishness of his opponents boasting, saying this, he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. He says, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews, my opponents? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. A Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul says, of Palestinian Jewish descent, an Israelite, one of God's chosen people, the offspring of Abraham, a recipient of the covenant promises of God and an heir of grace. There's, there's no one on either side of the argument with more heritage-related street cred, you might say, than the Apostle Paul. He says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, Paul says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, conservative Jewish upbringing, check, 
Education at the feet of Gamaliel, the most prominent rabbi of his day, check. Zeal for the law, check. Former persecution of Christians whom he considered to be apostate Jews at one point, check. Hey, Paul has all of the appropriate credentials. He would put all of us Bible belters to shame. His pedigree, just as impressive as his opponents, if not more. But, but notice what he does next. Notice where he goes here as he continues to make his boast. Beginning in verse 23, he says, Are they my opponents? Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, verse 27, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What in, the, what in the world is Paul doing? I mean, most of us would expect Paul to champion his strengths here. Those things that we might categorize as resume builders, right? You're giving out numbers, the number of times you were beaten, the number of times you were shipwrecked. Maybe you want to give out the number of degrees that you have, Paul, or perhaps the number of churches that you've planted, or, you know, the number of letters that you've written. I mean, he could have done that, right? He could have talked about all of those things, all of the converts to Christianity that he had won over, all the support that he had raised. I'm a better fundraiser than you guys. Like, he could have done any of that. In fact, we actually see him do something similar, though not taking on this posture of boasting in order to put someone in their place. In Romans 15, a little bit different context, but Paul says there, Romans 15, verses 17 through 19, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's impressive. Paul could have said something like that, declaring all of his ministry accomplishments. And yet, what does he do? He, he presents an incredibly lengthy list of experiences that reveal something of his human frailty and weakness, turning the entire paradigm of thinking upside down on its head, just like we saw Jesus do in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Paul lived much of his life, certainly just about all of his post-conversion life, in the furnace of affliction, including the, the many floggings at the hands of the Jews and the many beatings at the hands of the Romans. James and I were talking earlier this week about just what it must have been like the second time Paul received the 39 lashes, knowing what it felt like the first time. And then you add to that the third, fourth, and fifth, and that's just part of this exhaustive or inexhaustive list of, of things that, that, that Paul experienced in his sufferings. You have the imprisonment with Silas and Philippi, along with the many other imprisonments that he experienced. 
You have the many riots that ensued in the wake of his preaching the gospel, the most famous arguably being the one that broke out in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You have Paul's laboring as a tent maker and a church planter, along with the sleeplessness and the hunger that he oftentimes experienced along the way. Going back and looking at this list this past week and kind of doing some of the math there, conservatively speaking, between the lashes, the beatings, the stonings, and the shipwrecks, Paul would have experienced roughly a dozen near-death experiences by the time he wrote this letter. And he would actually go on to die as a martyr, which makes it sensible for Paul to say, In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. See what Paul's doing there? He's boasting in the scar tissue acquired in following and serving Jesus Christ. Absolute folly according to the world's standards. But that, that's not all. It's not just the outward sufferings that Paul includes in this bizarre, crazy resume of sorts. It's also the inward sufferings. Look at verses 28 and 29. Paul says, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? That when fellow believers were weak, Paul experienced something of a sympathetic resonance. He weeped with those who weeped. To the weak, he became weak. When fellow believers fell into sin, Paul personally felt a a distress, a saddened burning within him. Paul agonized over the well-being of the churches that that he had planted, longing to see those churches flourish for God's glory and, and the joy of God's people. Afraid, going back to earlier in this series, that his labor might prove to be in vain and the church becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, led astray. Even going back to the earlier part of this chapter, chapter 11, verse 3, he said, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Like Paul, Paul never slept well. He never stopped caring about the well-being of the church, this internal weight of suffering that he carried throughout his life. I mean, I think it goes without saying when we look at a passage like this that Paul's strategy was not to diminish his sufferings, right? To to minimize his weaknesses. His strategy, rather, was to declare just how drastic his suffering truly was, to boast of his weaknesses so that the power of Jesus might, might rest upon him. That those opposed to Paul saw his sufferings as a ministry disqualifier when his endurance and suffering was actually a declaration of the beauty of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus, of God's sustaining grace. Right? Paul actually understood his moments of suffering not to be uh, liabilities, but assets, opportunities, a chance to put the supreme worth of Jesus on display so that God might get the glory, his power made perfect in weakness. Psalm 73, verse 26 You can just hear Paul saying this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That 
what, what established Paul's legitimacy as a minister of the gospel, it was Christ-exalting endurance in the midst of suffering. Strength received from Jesus, who himself endured suffering and ultimately death. So I think a fair question to ask, and we've looked at this already in this series, why in the world would anyone expect the core of Christian thinking to be absent of suffering when the core of Christian thinking is a crucified Messiah? Paul's laundry list of sufferings is actually one of the greatest arguments for the legitimacy of his apostleship because it shows solidarity with the suffering Savior whom he follows. The Gospel Transformation Bible, I've quoted it a few times over the last several weeks, it's just so good on this part of Paul's follow-up letter to the church in Corinth. It says this, it says, as we understand our own trials and sufferings in this light, we discover that far from disqualifying us from experiencing and proclaiming the gospel, they actually qualify us for it. That God uses the hardest and most shameful experiences of our lives to soften us and bring us to fuller understanding of his surpassing benefits. In our isolation from the world's provision, we learn that we are fully satisfied when he is our portion. He uses our sufferings to demonstrate his sufficiency, and he uses our afflictions as the occasion for dispersing comfort and the deepest realities of his abiding care. I mean, I think it would be fair to say that surely the trials that we face in life are seemingly small in comparison to the many sufferings of the Apostle Paul. I don't think any of us are bringing our resume of weakness frailty and hardship to the table with Paul and having an arm wrestling match there, right? But at the same time, God is at work in each and every one of our own trials and sufferings without exception, using the hardest and most shameful experiences to soften us, to increase our satisfaction in him. I mean, many of us have experienced something of this work of the Lord in our hearts in the midst of this crazy season of life that's been anything but normal the last several months, right? To, to say it in C.S. Lewis's terminology, God is on the move, even now, right now. Going back to earlier in this letter, the earliest verses, chapter one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Going back to those verses, Paul uses the plural language of sufferings alongside the singular language of comfort. This diverse expression of sufferings, plural, with a God whose comfort singular is sufficient to cover every kind of anguish, every kind of hardship, every kind of suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That burdens that are beyond our strength, we've talked about this throughout this series, they're meant to bring us face to face with the insufficiency of self-reliance. God is doing a great deal of that right now in many of our lives. That we might more deeply rely on the God of resurrection power, the God of all comfort, the God who raises the dead, showing the world that, that none of us are the main characters. God is in this great redemptive historical drama. The God of all comfort, the God of resurrection power, putting himself on display. 
so that he might receive the glory that he so richly deserves. Again, coming back to that famous verse, chapter four, verse seven, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why Paul could put together a resume like this that included his human frailties, his weaknesses, his sufferings, because each and every one of those experiences was an opportunity for God to flex. If the aim of our lives is that we get the glory, then we will walk around championing the last book of the Bible that we completed or the last class that we took, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if the aim of our lives is that God get the glory, how can we not boast in our weaknesses like the Apostle Paul? And I love how he closes out this chapter as if he hasn't already humiliated himself enough. He could have just stopped at verse 29, but look at what he does. He goes on to say in verses 30 through 33, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped, at his, uh, escaped his hands. Paul, Paul includes one more incredibly specific example of an experience of weakness and humiliation, an example that many of us would seek to sweep under the rug in an effort to maintain our image. As he recalls an event in the city of Damascus, which reveals that that God had actually shown his strength in Paul's weakness going all the way back to the beginning of Paul's apostleship. If you recall the story of Paul's conversion, you see it on three different occasions in the book of Acts, most famously Acts chapter nine. Paul had originally headed for Damascus, we're told, to persecute Christians from a position of perceived strength. He left Damascus, we're told, in humiliating fashion, lowered in a basket like the daily garbage. The hunter, having become become the hunted, counting himself among the persecuted and the weak, recalling an event that not only would have kept him humble, but also would have given evidence to his devotion to the Lord and God's providential care for him. He met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and it changed everything so that the suffering man was actually the freer man, having known the joy of true forgiveness in Jesus Christ, no longer having to claw for approval, no longer having to feed his fragile ego, I would ask you this morning, do you know this Jesus died in the place of sinners like you and me that that we might be restored to the living God, freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation, strengthened with power in the greatest of our sufferings? What is our boast? Is it our education, our career success, maybe our bank balance or our impressive home? how well-behaved our children are. I love what Paul says in the prequel, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as, as if you did not receive it? All that we have, all that we are, it's a gift of God's grace. We've been given it by God. 
Jesus, what Paul's showing us here is that Jesus frees us to boast in our weaknesses. To not have to walk around as a people of pretense, putting on airs as Paul's opponents did. We can boast in our weaknesses because it's there that the power of God is displayed most clearly and beautifully and because we as his people desire that he and he alone get the glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. But by the grace of God, to use Paul's language elsewhere, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, that he might receive the glory due his name, because he is surely the one worthy of praise, amen? And so we're, we're gonna praise him. We're gonna continue to worship him in a couple of different ways. Uh, we're gonna sing, and it was a little bizarre to do out on this lawn, separated, distanced from each other, but I just invite you to lean into that over the course of these next few minutes together, you as well engaging via live stream, probably even stranger with your family unit or you as an individual in your living room participating in that act of worship. But I just invite you to do that. Um, there will also be an opportunity to receive of communion. On your way in on either table to my left and right, there are communion cups. They have the, the bread and the, and the cup connected to one another, a one-stop shop, you might say. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the, the cup, the juice representing his shed blood. Uh, if you didn't grab one of those cups and you're a Christian, I invite you to go do so anytime between now and the end of this service. We've got a couple of songs to work through between now and then. Before you partake of the Lord's Supper, I just invite you to stop and to, to think on the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by whom we've been brought into this family, this family that doesn't have to walk around boasting of our achievements because we've been freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation, a people who can now boast in our weaknesses and make much of our Savior and King who died for us and rose from the dead so that we might have life.